Good morning. Welcome to another edition of China Takes Over the World. I am Ying Ma. China's heated territorial disputes with its neighbors in the South China Sea have led many to accuse Beijing of violating international law. The Philippines, in particular, has even taken the disputes to arbitration under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. China, in turn, has accused others like the Philippines as the real international lawbreakers, and、uh, China maintains that its legal position is on solid ground. Is China right, and can international law really help resolve? The territorial disputes that are raging in Asia. With us to discuss these complex issues is Julian Ku, professor of law and faculty director of international programs at Hofstra University Law School. Julian, good morning. Morning.、Uh, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Well, the Philippines wants to force China into compulsory non-voluntary voluntary arbitration. Is China doing anything illegal by refusing to participate in the proceedings brought by the Philippines?、Um, not yet. So,、um, what the Philippines has done is has filed a claim for arbitration, and、um, the tribunal has the right to determine whether it has. Jurisdiction or the power to hear this case, China has simply just not shown up. But、um, actually, it's not oddly enough; it's not illegal just not to show up. But you do have to face the consequences of a negative judgment. So, if the tribunal goes ahead and issues a negative award against China, and China at that point ignores it, then they would violate international obligations and international law. Why is it not illegal for China just not to show up right now? Well, the way that to think about this is sort of like an analogy to a contract dispute in a court. If you're a private citizen and someone sues you and you just don't show up, what the court does is they don't say you violate the law. What they do is they issue some sort of judgment against you.、Um, at that point, you and then they say you have to pay up or something like that. So at that point, you technically violate the law. So you sort of have the right, essentially, not to not to defend yourself if you choose not to. Well, according to China, it says that it also declared in 2006 that, pursuant to the law of the sea, that it would opt out of any compulsory system of international dispute resolution that would rule on its territorial claims. And and China says this case that the Philippines wants to to、um, argue about is in fact something that、uh, that is focused on their territorial disputes. So. How is Manila describing its claims or its grievances before the Law of the Sea Arbitral Tribunal to get around this opt-out from yeah. China? Yeah, this is a good point. So,、um, to give a little background, so the Law of the Sea Tribunal is empowered to resolve all disputes under the Law of the Sea Treaty, but China is allowed to, like several other countries, has limited the type of disputes that can go to the tribunal. Um, and as you said, they have limited. They have said we will not allow disputes involving、uh, maritime boundaries、uh, to be sent to the tribunal. And so the Philippines is aware of this, and there's no question China has the right to do that. So the Philippines has organized their claims in a variety of ways to avoid challenging China's, or at least try to avoid challenging China's sort of territorial claims. What they've said is, we want to, the tribunal to declare that this. Thing that China says is an island is actually a rock or an undersea feature that doesn't give it any legal rights. So we want the tribunal to declare that you know this feature is you know some sort of、uh, non-land feature. And in the South China Sea, a lot of the features are kind of underwater, although not very far underwater. So this is so the type of technical arguments that would 
the Philippines is trying to make arguments about. However, although the lawyers have made very complicated arguments, the Philippines government themselves have at several times stated that what they really want is to resolve the territorial disputes with China. And sometimes they've accidentally said things like, <laughs> we've brought them there to resolve these territorial disputes. So the government in their public statements is not always consistent. And I think it's fair to say that ultimately what's behind all this is the Philippines is does really want to challenge <laughs> China's territorial claims in court. But they know that they can't under this particular treaty. And so is is there some validity to China saying the Philippines is just masquerading this claim and that the, at the heart of the issue really are these territorial disputes and every now and then the government of the Philippines would slip, as you say, and mention that. So um, it, how, how do you think the arbitral tribunal will rule? Do you think that the tribunal will say that it does have jurisdiction over this issue? It's a tricky case. I mean, I think um, if China had actually gone to the tribunal and made its case and said, look, this doesn't belong here, you have no jurisdiction, I think, they would have had a pretty strong case because they would have been able to say, like I've just said, essentially all these claims, uh, the only way you can rule on these claims is to determine whether or not the Philippines actually has territorial sovereignty. Because, for instance, the Philippines says, you know, China's been harassing our boats by not allowing them to approach Scarborough Shoal. And not only that, and that China's not saying they haven't done that, but they're saying that Scarborough Shoal is within our exclusive economic zone, so we can do that. <laughs> um, and so, or it's within their mer- you know, territorial seas or something. And so really the tribunal does have to arguably consider all these underlying territorial disputes, because if it does belong to China, then they haven't done anything unlawful. So I think that it is, you know, they do have a, they would have a pretty decent case. It's going to be a close call, though, because the whole Philippines has, style their claim in ways, and they have very good lawyers, to try to avoid this. Um, so I think it would be a close call. The fact that China is not even going to argue them, they're not even going to show up in the tribunal and make the argument, I think is going to hurt them. The tribunal has a duty to determine, to consider this, this issue, but no one's going to be presenting the argument on China's side. It's, they're just going to be hearing one side at the argument. So I think it's going to make it a little harder and maybe make it more tempting for the tribunal to say, well, maybe we do have jurisdiction over this case. Well, you mentioned earlier that what the Philippines is trying to say is that some of the things that they're arguing over, you know, that uh, perhaps a a certain island is not actually an island and it's a rock. Um, What difference would something like that make? Could you maybe clarify for those of us who are not totally familiar with the law of the sea? Right. So that's that's a great point, great question. Um, So uh, under the law of the sea, what is useful is that certain things give you legal rights like islands, <laughs> they give you legal rights. And most importantly, they give you things like the right to declare the 12 miles around the island to be within your territorial sea, equivalent really of your territory. So it's really important if something's an island versus not an island. And this is a constant problem in the law of the sea to try to determine whether something's a rock or an island, especially out here in Asia. So it is a big, it's a big, you know, it's 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 a potentially important question. And, and there's some other permutations of it. If it's an island, then you can claim sovereignty of it. You also get other legal rights going out 200 miles, and it might give you a continental shelf underneath the water to drill for oil, for instance, underneath the water. So it does. So whether something is an island or a rock, just to take one example, could make a big difference for a sovereignty claim. So I think, for instance, the Philippines might be arguing, well, this is not really 
they could say, well, the tribunal just declared this is, an, this is a rock, not an island, and therefore China, even if they do own the rock, doesn't get any legal rights out of the rock. <laughs> and so therefore that would be something that the Philippines could try to pursue. And I think that's, that's their best strategy, and that's what they've been trying to do, is to try to get the tribunal to declare things that China owns, the shoals or the, the rocks, things that China currently controls, to try to get the tribunal to say, well, those things don't give you any legal rights anyway. And is a shoal more similar to a rock than it would be to an island? Yes. Okay. And and I know we're getting into the weeds a little bit, but obviously some of the things that China and the Philippines are fighting over are shoals, in fact. So, for instance, Scarborough Shoal, the second Thomas Shoal, um, and and both countries claim that they own those shoals. Right. But they claim it for different reasons. Um, And the basis of their claims isn't that the shoals are islands. But they're usually based on China has a claim to other islands that are nearby that would give it some legal rights over things that are within the shoal, that are near the shoal. China isn't always clear on this, but that's usually China's claim. There are other islands that are undoubtedly islands that China does claim and sometimes actually controls. And they can say, well, everything around that and near it is within our either you know, territory or at least we have some exclusive economic rights to control fishing in those areas and things like that. So that's why the legal issues do matter, because they do affect the types of claims the countries are making. And, and what, what does the Philippines usually say? The Philippines says, look, this is, these shoals are within 200 miles of our coast, our mainland coast, or effectively their mainland coast. And within 200 miles of our coast, that's our that's our, we have our exclusive economic rights to think, do things like control fishing and use economic resources in those areas. We can't, we don't have, it's not like our territory, but we have certain economic rights, and China can't just send fishing boats in there and things like that. They also claim that the continental shelf, which refers to the land feature underneath the water, <laughs> which gives you rights to the under the seabed floor, if it extends out from your mainland coast, you get the rights to control the resources underneath the seabed. And again, the Philippines will claim a lot of the features here, if they're not within 200 miles of us, are actually on our continental shelf. In other words, they connect geographically to our main islands. And so therefore, that belongs to us, too. Um, so that's, that's, I think, the crux of the types of claims they're making. Now, they're not making those claims in the court, but effectively, that's what, they, what they're really arguing. We are chatting with Julian Koo of Hofstra University Law School. Well, the United States has also criticized China for not participating in arbitration with the Philippines. Uh, what is the U.S. record on participating in these types of arbitration for settling territorial disputes? Yeah, this is a very interesting. This is something I've been thinking about my, a lot. Um, the U.S. has never has, has used arbitration to settle territorial disputes. In fact, it was one of the first countries to do this. Um, and many of the disputes with Canada um, were settled through either a bilateral commission um, or through a formal arbitration. A commission essentially is like an arbitration field, but not quite. Uh, and, and even most recently, in 1982, they, they created a special tribunal with Canada and uh, jointly settled a maritime boundary in the Gulf of Maine that had been lingering for hundreds of years of dispute uh, through international arbitration. But the one difference here, and I think the U.S. and China would have the same view, is that both countries would be very uh, opposed to using these sorts of uh, law of the sea tribunals to resolve territorial disputes. The U.S. has historically only really favored these sorts of international arbitrations or international court proceedings when they have um, agreed at the time what exactly they're going to send to the tribunal. This essentially what we call voluntary arbitration. 
And that's generally the way the U.S. operates. And so China here is not really, is in some ways would echo the United States here in other cases by resisting what's a compulsory or mandatory arbitration. Um, so I think in this, that's what's interesting. I think in some ways the U.S. and China here have a similar approach to international tribunals. And has the U.S. or other major powers ignored rulings from international tribunals that they disliked in the past? Yes, and so this is another precedent that China can point to. Um, most recently in 2008, the United States um, essentially ignored a judgment by the International Court of Justice, which is the <laughs> leading international court in The Hague. Um, to uh, suspend certain executions of Mexican nationals in the United States. And that had to do mostly with a question of what, which part of the U.S. government had the power to do so. But effectively, they did violate the obligation. In 1984, the United States ignored International Court of Justice uh, judgment, ordering it to stop mining harbors near Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, in that case, it's very similar because the United States argued that the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, had no jurisdiction the court disagreed with them, the U.S. simply ignored it. Um, so I think China, in some ways, can invoke some precedents set by the United States and other large powers. Russia has sometimes and most recently ignored uh, International uh, Tribunal for Law Sea Order related to the seizure of green, a Greenpeace vessel in the North, uh, North Sea, I think. So, so, this is, so China here is not an outlier, I think, if it does, in fact, end up ignoring uh, whatever judgment this tribunal comes up with. Mm-hmm. And many experts uh, and the U.S. military have been pressing for the U.S. Congress to ratify the law of the sea so that America can better deal with the challenges now posed by China in the South China Sea. Do you actually think that ratification of the treaty will make any difference? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I don't buy that argument. There might be good reasons to ratify the law of the sea, but I don't think containing China is one of them. I, I don't think there's any evidence. Right now, um, if the U.S. was a member of the law of the sea, it wouldn't. I think the U.S. would still nece- not necessarily agree that, uh, or would might still agree with China that this tribunal has no jurisdiction. And right now, I don't know that it would make a difference in trying to persuade China uh, on any of these issues. Um, so I'm not. I just don't think it would make one difference, uh, make a difference one way or the other with respect to. At, at least not China. as far as this arbitration. Uh, pre- or even cases. on the territorial disputes, I think, uh-huh. because the U.S. Um, accepts as a matter of policy. And as customary law, essentially all of the rules of the law of the sea that relate to territorial disputes. The U.S. doesn't disagree with any of them, pretty much. And so there's no, it doesn't really make a difference, I think, at least to China or the U.S., whether or not the U.S. is formally in the treaty, because the U.S. agrees that the rules, the same rules apply. We've been speaking with Julian Ku, professor of law and faculty director of international programs at Hofstra University Law School. Uh, Julian, thanks very much for chatting with us. Oh, thank you. Please join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash China Takes Over or on Twitter at Rising China. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Long. Good morning. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma. China participated for the first time this year in the U.S.-led Rim of the Pacific exercise, the world's largest maritime exercise held every two years near Hawaii. 
The exercise took place from June 26 to August 1st and included 22 nations, about 48 ships, six submarines, 200 aircraft, and 25,000 personnel. The People's Liberation Army Navy sent four ships and an estimated 1,100 sailors, contributing the largest, the second largest force to impact after the United States. We are delighted to welcome Rick Fisher to talk about China's participation in RIMPAC 2014, U.S.-China military ties, and China's military modernization. Rick is a senior fellow on Asian military affairs at the International Assessment and Strategy Center. Rick, good morning. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Congressman Randy Forbes, a Republican member of the House Armed Services Committee, has said that China should have been excluded from RIMPAC because of its, quote, belligerent behavior, unquote, toward neighbors in recent years. Do you think the U.S. military made the mistake of rewarding China's bad behavior by allowing it to participate in RIMPAC? I agree with the congressman. Uh, RIMPAC is intended to bring together the countries that uphold a, a sense of order and a, a certain sense of adhering to the rules of the road. Uh, China is the only participant in RIMPAC which is trying to upset the order, specifically by threatening to use naval and air violence against countries with which it has territorial disputes, namely Japan, the Philippines, and Vietnam. Uh, these conflicts are, are in deep danger of breaking out into actual fighting. And because of that, China, a, a point was lost, a, a, an opportunity was lost to make a point to the Chinese that this behavior is unacceptable. Well, the uh, Chinese participants... Um or at least their government, sent a surveillance ship to the vicinity of Hawaii where a number of the RIMPAC exercises took place. And US, um, a Na U.S. Navy spokesperson said that this was the first time that he could remember that a participant of RIMPAC actually sent a ship to spy on RIMPAC. Does this show a serious sign of bad, bad faith from the Chinese military, or in the very least, is this at least bad etiquette? Well, it, it certainly creates uh, an awkward impression, uh, and that, that's to put it mildly. Uh, the purpose of RIMPAC is, at a minimum, is to foster friendship and appreciation, transparency, and to make it easier for the participating navies to help each other in the event of emergencies, be they uh, uh, military in nature or humanitarian in nature. And uh, China uh, treating the RIMPAC exercise uh, like a very large intelligence-gathering bonanza uh, it runs completely counter to the spirit of the event. And uh, it, was, it was, again, another op lost opportunity for Washington to make a point to the Chinese that this is not acceptable and uh, it, we, we just can't have that. Well, Washington acknowledges that China wasn't actually doing anything illegal. The, the Chinese ship was outside of U.S. territorial waters, though it was in the U.S. exclusive economic zone. Uh, and the U.S. believes that as long as it, it remained in international waters, it was fine. Uh, but in the past, 
China has repeatedly protested U.S. reconnaissance efforts in China's ec- exclusive economic zone, even though they the those efforts were in international waters. So, so do you think that China's recent reconnaissance efforts at RIMPAC or or its thirst for for intelligence um, at the exercise undermine any future objections it might raise to U.S. surveillance in China's EEZ? Well, yes, it, it certainly does. And you know, let's 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 be honest here. Uh, the American surveillance, at at times, yes, coming close to Chinese uh, actual territory, and at times sparking uh, friction uh, near incidents. Well, in two thousand one, a, a real incident. Uh, right when a when is, a Chinese uh, plane collided. With... Right, and a a Chinese fighter plane uh, was lost with with its pilot, unfortunately. Uh, but China is undertaking activities. It is building up its military. It is largely not transparent about its uh, goals and 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 uh, the gathering means. And uh, the anxiety is that is expressed by the American surveillance is not simply that of Washington's. Uh, it is broadly shared in the region, and the American surveillance is greatly appreciated by our allies. We are speaking with Rick Fisher of the International Assessment and Strategy Center. Last week, Admiral Jonathan Greenard, Chief of Naval Operations um, and the highest-ranking uniformed officer of the U.S. Navy, said he was open to the idea of letting Chinese soldiers tour the USS George Washington an aircraft carrier based in Japan. Are we seeing here a phenomenon where security tensions are quite high between China and U.S. allies in Asia, but where the U.S. military is actually improving ties with the Chinese military? And if so, what do you think explains this phenomenon? Uh, Admiral Greenert's invitation and uh, his apparent enthusiasm for getting a reciprocal visit to China's aircraft carrier is the product of uh, 25 years of effort by the American military. Since uh, the eruptions of Tiananmen in 1989, when contacts were shut down, the United States military has been trying very hard, very persistently, to try to create a working relationship with counterparts, a professional relationship that can serve to avoid conflict or ameliorate conflict if and when that that happens. Uh, Sadly, this effort is somewhat misplaced. It's not totally misplaced, but largely misplaced, because the military in China does not make the decisions. It does not call the shots. It's the Communist Party that calls the shots. And if the American government had devoted over this 25-year period just 10% of the effort uh, aimed at uh, engaging the PLA, but instead trying to engage the party, we might have a much more solid uh, set of options in which to prevent or ameliorate conflicts than all the effort that we've spent on the PLA. Do you think that we've gotten or do you think the U.S. military has gotten the results it desired from the PLA? No. Uh, the last several years, notwithstanding, have have been on a uh, 
gradual uh, uptick. There have been more instances where the PLA has uh, shown some ankles, so to speak. They they let uh, our <laughs> Secretary of Defense uh, actually tour their aircraft carrier last year for the first time. Uh, we've been uh, able to tour a modern submarine, but none of their nuclear submarines. The Chinese have toured our nuclear submarines. So in a, in a relative sense, this is getting better. But we simply can't rely on communication at the military-to-military level because it will be turned off the instant there's trouble. And if we put all of our uh, hope in that basket, uh, we will be sadly disappointed. It is far better, in my opinion, to work even harder to gain access to uh, unknown or forbidden areas of the Chinese Communist Party apparatus and to get to know those people a lot better so we can call them and tell them what we think. Sure. So, however, that's probably not something best done by the U.S. military, and it probably is a job that would be better, that could be better facilitated by those in civilian leadership, right? And and so given that that scenario, do you think that the military leaders are, in fact, um, doing the right thing by at least trying to provide the Chinese military with the proper reassurances or trying to, to cooperate with them where they can, uh, even though everyone knows that that the U.S. military and Chinese, the Chinese military have all kinds of areas where they're, they're going to compete on? Uh, uh, I, I believe that a certain level of effort is indeed uh, warranted, but it... W- we should not expend effort to the point where it is our only option. I think that there needs to be an equal, perhaps an even greater effort underway to try to engage the party, to try to get to meet the next generation or the the third generation of leadership in the waiting before in uh, uh, and, and to develop relationships with those people before they come to Beijing. Why, why do you think important. we haven't done that? Is that because of a sort of a, a, an oversight from the civilian leadership of our an oversight from from our policymakers? Well, in, in part because there's so much effort is placed on the military relationship that it blinds us to establishing this other priority, and I think the other. Uh, probably even more important reason is that the party would never allow us <laughs> to uh, 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 get to know them that well. It, it, it is still a, a, a communist party that uh, embraces and cherishes uh, secrecy at every level, uh, and uh, it, it's, it's, it, 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 it should have been uh, the target of yet another 25-year operation. We should not have just uh, told the military, ordered the military to go out and do the best job you can getting to know the Chinese military. I mean, the party is very powerful in the PLA. The party controls the PLA, and we should have, uh, within our PLA engagement strategy, made a special effort to get to know the, uh, the political side of the PLA because uh, in in many respects, they are the most important core within the PLA. 
We've got about 45 seconds left. Um, China's announced defense budget this year is 808 billion yuan, which is approximately 130 billion dollars. And though this already constitutes a 12 percent rise from from the previous year, many say say that this does not even completely reflect China's total military spending. Um, how much for 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 experts like yourself? Um, how, how much do you think China is actually spending on its military right now? Uh, it could be two to four times the official figure. Uh, it's it's very hard to uh, pr- come up with a total number because the PLA calls on so many other budgets within China. Uh, if you if you build a road between two villages, uh, the PLA has a say in how that road is constructed and usually uh, uh, contributes something, but also benefits from all the local budgets that go into that road. And that's the kind of problem uh, replicated a thousandfold that we face when trying to count the PLA defense budget. We've been speaking with Rick Fisher, Senior Fellow on Asian Military Affairs at the International Assessment and Strategy Center. Rick, thanks very much for chatting with us. Thank you. Please send us your comments at uh, on Facebook at facebook.com slash China Takes Over or on Twitter at Rising China. You've been listening to China Takes Over the World with Ying.